Hi, I'm Adrian Potter. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. For most of my life, I've been curious about why people do the things they do, especially people that create for a living. In these episodes, I'm going to talk to people that design and make the most amazing things. I'm going to ask them how and why they do the things they do. Please join me on this adventure into a creative life. Folks, thank you so much for once again joining me on the Designer Maker Revolution. I really appreciate it. Can't do it without people listening. It's bloody awesome. And thanks, as always, for the incredible feedback I've been getting. Today on the show, Will Matheson is my guest. He's a clockmaker and used to be once upon a time an architect. He makes the most beautiful clocks in the world and uh, I recommend you... Go and have a look at them before we start our chat. We talk about all sorts of things, including what it's like to grow up in South Africa in apartheid era. We talk about all sorts of things clock making wise as well, which I reckon is really super interesting. Please enjoy this episode with Will Matheson. Take it away, Will. Hey, Will, it's Adrian here. Hi, Adrian. How are you going? Good. How are you? Oh, not too bad. What did you get up to today? Uh, just mucking around in the workshop, doing stuff. Cool. Tinkering. I love tinkering. Yeah, I've been tinkering today. Yeah. Mm. I've been working on a little escapement called the Grasshopper Escapement. <laughs> Beautiful. Have you heard of it? No. It's a gorgeous little thing. Yeah, it's, they're quite tricky to get running. But once they're operating, they just they just magical. Mm. Yeah. Oh, what is that? So uh, yeah. Other than that, I've just been clearing up a bit, and I've just fed the dogs. So I'm in the workshop now. Yeah. Cool. Do you get uh, a, Do you get a lot of chance to tinker? Yeah. Well, tinker when I'm not working, and mm. not sort of sitting behind the computer doing emails and stuff. Mm. Yeah, maybe the question is then, how often do you work? <laughs> well, probably not as much as I should. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. The word should's always problematic. Yeah, but then, you know, like, put it this way, I tinker while I'm working or I think while I'm tinkering. Yeah. And I don't see much of a distinction between working and tinkering and doing other stuff. Yeah. So I just tend to go from one activity which takes my interest but then at the back of my mind there's always something that i have to do yeah and then by the time i find i'm in the right frame of mind to do it i've sussed out what i have to do and then i just get straight into it and then it's quite nice and it's quite enjoyable because you get into the sort of frame of mind necessary to do the job and to do it efficiently and well and quickly <laughs> yeah how many hours a day do you reckon you work oh Anywhere between four, five, six, I'd say about six. That's the, that's the span of my attention. Yeah, right. I'm getting on a bit. I, I used to work longer in the past. I know when I started, I was working like an eight-hour, ten-hour day. Yeah. But then I had kids and family 
duties and people to talk to and stuff like that. So, but now I just tend to um, take it easier. If it's a nice day, I'll go down to the river with the dogs and go for a walk. Uh, and if it's a really nice, calm day, then I'll take my model aircraft to the flying field. And <laughs> Did you build all the servo motors and the little props and pulleys <laughs> and whatever else it's got? Obviously, you built the aircraft. You you wouldn't have bought that. No, bugger it. I'll just buy the aircraft out. I haven't got time to build it. <laughs> well, that's what, you, no. that's what you should be doing. Oh, I should. No, that's just too time-consuming. Oh, mm. no, I'm... I'm not one of these guys that builds a scale model of a mosquito bomber at, you know, one-fifth scale and then puts a little pilot in and and the little, you know, speedometer and make sure it's like, you know, exactly spot-on detail. But yeah. that, I just, you I just, just want to go and fly. Yeah, no, I, I like bigger planes, which have got a, you know, like a 60 or an 80cc motor, and then... Um, yeah, just fly the hell out of it. I used to have a car with a 60 or 80cc motor in it. My first car yeah. was about that size. <laughs> I'm only joking. Ah, it'll be a 600cc. Yeah, it was more like that. No, 60cc is like a moped size yeah. motor. <laughs> oh, no. You, oh, no. You yeah, no, this car was, yeah, it was a big moped. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I drove it to Canberra many times, though. It did a lot of Ks with me. Heaps. Yeah. What car was it? It was an LC Tirana. Uh -huh. And I ended up giving it away. I gave it to my uncle, who's – it wasn't his car. It was my grandmother's car originally. She won in at a raffle and hardly ever drove it. So when I got it, it was already 20 years old with no miles on it. Yeah, I, I gave it to my uncle who had – tinkered with it a little bit and he sold it for a couple of hundred bucks or something but i think they're worth probably 20 grand now those cars it's mad wow yeah wow. just all those you know it was never a muscle car it was a very small engine yeah. so maybe it yeah. wouldn't be worth that much but it was it was um pristine really mm. now my first car in australia was a 1962 ford falcon beautiful yeah. V8. A, had a V8, yeah. didn't it? Did you have no, a V8? No, no, mm. no. no. It had a six-cylinder uh, six inline, but it was the first Falcon to come out with an automatic gearbox. All right. Two-speed. Yeah. Two-speed, yeah. Mike. So you Yeah. <laughs> so you'd cruise, and then at about sort of uh, 40, 50 miles an hour, the thing would go, and then it would click down into the low gear and start again. Yeah. And it is such a lovely light car to drive. Was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I took I took it to Adelaide once. Yeah, the radiator blew up at Border Town. <laughs> what a beautiful town to blow up in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was bloody steam all over the place. Yeah. Water yeah. gurgling. I was, I was about two or three k's out of town. Oh, yeah. Well, that's not too bad. You could have been 20 k's out. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, but they came to pick me up. There was this little farmhouse on the side of the road, mm. and this this little old lady came out and said, are you okay? And I said, oh, well, yeah, I've got a bit of a problem. And then she called up the mechanic in town, and then he came along and picked me up and put towed it in. Mm. Yeah, and they were just spending then, yeah, it's just amazing. That's country hospitality for you. Mm. 
Border, I always stop in Border Town. I think Border Town's really pretty. There's a, a park right in the centre that was done by two friends of mine. Um, Vista Sealens did the landscaping and Martin Corbin did the artwork in there and all the benches and little carved animals. It's beautiful. Yeah, I haven't been there in ages. Well, next time you come to Adelaide, you will, now that I've mentioned Stop in yeah. Border Town, go and have a, a pie at the bakery and, and uh, enjoy yeah. the little artwork thingy there. So tinkering, I reckon, is one of the joys in the world. I love tinkering. Well, it's like thinking with your hands. That's mm. the way I am. To be able to tinker, you need to have um, a certain set of ingredients, though, don't you? You've got to have time. And to get that time, you've got to have probably your house paid off and things like that. I don't want to, you don't have to talk about that if you don't want, but I wouldn't be able to tinker anymore, I don't reckon. Oh, that's pretty sad. Yeah, look, it is. I mean, maybe I'm tinkering right now with this podcast thing. No, I probably probably could, actually, but I couldn't do it during the day. Not like I used to be able to. When I was working for myself, I could muck around, do this Mm. and do that and switch Mm. here and switch there. I mean... Provided there weren't any deadlines. Yeah, no, it depends what sort of what sort of pressures you've got. Mm. I mean, I can tinker now. If you've got orders backed up and you really have to get work out and there's the expectation that you have to have something finished by Christmas or whatever, mm. then you then I don't really tinker. Then you really get on with it. Yeah. Stay, and that's like a different discipline. And then once you finish those orders, you find that, you know, you might have a break or a window of open-ended uh, non-commitment, and then you can just take the time to explore ideas. I mean, I've, I've always got a backlog of ideas that I want to explore or fine-tune or experiment with. Mm. Are these always escapements, or are they different parts of your practice, or...? What the escapement I'm working on now? Yeah, look, if you're if you're just tinkering, are you doing clock making activities or are you doing other things? Anything? Oh, mainly. No, if I'm tinkering, I'm really tinkering around the edges of what I do in my trade mm. making, mm. but I approach it from a lateral perspective. Yeah, I think that makes it interesting because you can always figure out a new way of doing something. Mm. by coming at it from a different angle. And it's just about making connections with which bypasses a traditional way of doing something. And then suddenly you think, hey, wait a minute, why don't I, you know, if I turn this around or invert it or do something else, I can achieve another result, which is potentially more interesting. Mm. Do you reckon it, it, it's not like you're, originating in a thing or you are creating things because you're making them, but you're trying to innovate, hey? Well, if innovation's necessary, then I think that's what I would do. But what I do, I suppose, is, look, I sort of work at on the intersection of two craft traditions, two very clearly defined traditions. Yep. You know, it's, it's woodworking and it's clock making. Mm. And, you know, to the purists in either field, you never really accepted, you know, to the purest clockmakers. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's, that's a really curious thing to say. 
well, um, if you've got clockmakers that are traditionalists, they'll end up really reproducing designs which were established, you know, one, 200 years ago. They'll end mm. up reproducing something which was designed in 1890 or 1864 or something. Mm. And because I come at it from a different angle where I look at wood, I look at wood design, I use my architectural design background, and you, once you overlay those filters onto what you're doing, you come up with a very different product. Yeah. You know, it might still be a clock and it might still function like one, but the look and the feel and the aesthetics and the poetry of it is, you know, is a combination of all those influences. Mm. And, yeah, I find that pretty exciting, pretty interesting. Yeah, after all these years too, because you've been doing it for a long time. Yeah, I have, yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah. Why would? Yeah, why would, Will? Oh, why would? I thought you were going to complete the sentence. Um, <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> I thought it was... It was w a question mark. <laughs> W-O-U-L-D, I thought that's why. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Nah. Why would? Gosh, that goes back a bloody million years. Um, my father was a, a carpenter by trade, and when I grew up as a kid, you know, he had a workshop as, at home. He was a building contractor at that stage. I was the end, the last of five kids in a large family. So he was, he had established a, a building company, construction company, but he still had a uh, a workshop at home where he'd do the the cabinetry and the doors and all that kind of stuff. Mm. All so I'd get back from school and just head head to the workshop. So it was like second nature to me, and I'd just see what he was doing and see tools and timber and stuff lying around, and then I'd I'd just start making stuff. It makes yeah. sense from your background as an architect too, hey, if your dad's a builder. Yeah, you, it does. You, yeah, it you does. can understand that background in buildings, homes, factories, whatever. But yeah. in terms of clockmaking, actually, it would has a long history in clockmaking. You, can you talk about that and then go into why you would use wood in your clocks? Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, I've researched this quite extensively, and the use of wood in clocks goes back, but that I'm aware of anyway, to you know, fifteen, sixteen hundreds. Mm. Prior to that, clockmaking actually started out. They were basically blacksmiths. I'm talking about the 13th century now in Europe, right? Yeah. 11th, 12th, 13th century, they were blacksmiths. Then, then they got smaller and more refined, and then you got the locksmiths who were adept at making small, mm. you know, mechanisms. And I think it really started, that side of it was going in southern Germany, in Augsburg, where they'd make incredibly exquisite little steel and brass movements, but mainly steel or iron, wrought iron. And there were craft traditions in rural areas around that. Which um, which used wood, yeah. so that would have been say in the Black Forest in Germany or in Switzerland, where you'd have farmers who were 
basically peasants. And during the long winter months, they had nothing to do, yeah. but they had a piece of timber. And in order to supplement their income, they'd sort of make copies or replicas of these iron clock movements. Yeah, right. Which they might have seen them in the master's mansion or something like that. And then they'd go along and replicate that in wood. So the Swiss did that. The, uh, the Germans did that definitely. Then there's a huge gap. Then traditional clock making in brass and steel really began to take off in the mid-1600s. And they were really brass and steel movements. Jump forward to the early 1800s in, in the U.S., in um, Connecticut and the New England states. And this was just after the War of Independence. Yep. And uh, brass was scarce because they just had a war with Britain and they'd melted down all the cannons, you know, the brass to make cannons and stuff. Yeah. They began to make them out of wood, out of American timbers. And they not only that, they actually mass-produced them and... That was at a stage where I've forgotten the name of the guy who started to mass produce guns. But anyway, it is the idea of interchangeable parts. Yeah. So they there was a very clever clockmaker in um, Eli Terry. That's his name. In um, I think he was Connecticut, and he was given a contract to produce four thousand clocks, which were really cheap clocks for the mass market in the U.S. because mm -hmm. no one could afford the really expensive brass and steel movements, which really came from from Britain. Yeah. So he hit on the idea of making interchangeable parts. So he just set up machine tools and quite basic machine tools for machining the gears out of, I think he used pear or fruit wood, yeah. the gears and the pinions. The, the plates with the little holes which take the pivots, they were done out of quarter-sawn um, American red oak. And, um, yeah, and I've actually got one. There is no scarce way. identity. Yeah, yeah. How I bought one. Yeah. I got it about 15 years ago, and it's as good as new. You're joking. Has it been running for the entire time? I, oh, who knows? Who knows? Mm. Does it? It obviously runs now. Oh, yeah, 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 it runs. And I can see wear marks, you know, where the, the, the wheels the, the wheels and the pinions have been meshing and stuff like that. But everything's straight, everything's true. The workmanship, mm. that is absolutely exquisite. Mm. And it's a mass-produced object, mm. you know? So, yeah, so that was quite a find. I, I can imagine yeah, and the amazing thing is that when they designed the tooth form, they deviated from the standard tooth form to make it like a triangular wedge with a wide root at the base of the tooth. Yeah. Traditional tooth of a clock is parallel-sided, so it's quite skinny at the base. Yeah. If you do that in wood, it'll just snap off. Mm. So what they did is they re-engineered the product to suit the material. Yeah. Yeah? That is really clever. And then where they made the pivot holes, where the little steel pivots go into the plates, so you've basically got a steel pin rotating in a in a piece of wood with a hole in it. But what they've done, they made an undersized hole to start off the pivot hole, and then they must have taken like a burnishing tool 
a tapered burnishing tool and forced that into the wood mm. to compress the fibres. Mm. And, yeah, you know, it's little things like that. which Goodness. Most people wouldn't notice or appreciate that. But somebody who understands wood, who's got a background in wood, you can suddenly see the thought process. Mm. And, um, yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. One, yeah. one thing I'm just going to flag now is that a lot of what you're talking about is going to be over my head and over our listeners' heads. But hang in there, folks, please. Uh, we'll try and get through. <laughs> we'll try and nut this stuff all out, like in terms of clocks. Like uh, one of the things that I, I should get you to explain straight up is what an escapement is. Oh, an escapement. Look, a clock's just a simple bunch of gears. It's a step-down gearbox, right? And if you put a spring or a weight at the one end, the other end's going to spin around wildly. Mm. But what you need is a little device at the top which interrupts the flow of the gears. And if you hook a pendulum onto that, which is um, something which will slow down the rate at which the whole thing unwinds, then you've essentially got a timepiece. Yeah, yeah. And there's the little device at the top. It's the thing that gives you the tick on the top. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's... It, it's like the whole thing's under tension, I guess, is a yeah, good way yeah, to explain it. And yeah. it wants to go super, super fast, but that escapement, it flicks in and out of a gear mechanism, yeah. and that's yeah. the tick and the tock. And as it flicks in, it stops the movement and then yeah. flicks out and then stops the movement and then flicks in and stops the yeah. movement. So there's kind of like um, a yoke would be a good word or what's a... Yeah. Yeah. What's another way to describe that shape? Like if you make a C shape with your thumb and your forefinger and you imagine yeah. that C shape, your thumb goes down and then your forefinger goes down and then your thumb goes down, that's what the escapement is effectively doing. So it's stopping the the movement yeah. of the clock and yeah. regulating yeah. how fast or slow that clock is going to go. That's right, yeah, that's exactly it. And if you if you put a pendulum onto that, the pendulum's got a natural period, mm. which it'll beat. So you can adjust the speed at which it at which it uh, interrupts and runs, and also the escapement provides a little kick or an impulse to the pendulum to to keep it running. Mm. The pendulum also is a because it's got a mass provides what's called momentum. Yep. To keep that that spring under tension or not to, to kind of the, I guess, I think the proper word would be damping, wouldn't it? It'd be like just keeping everything. It's like a flywheel on the front of a, a motor car engine. I mean, there's heaps of people yeah. who won't understand what that is either, but there's a, because there's a mass involved in that pendulum, it makes everything much smoother. That's it. Yeah. It sort of evens out the impulse yep. from the escapement. Mm. And, yeah, you're right. If you've got a heavy mass on the end of a pendulum, it's like a, it's like a heavy flywheel. It stabilises the, the rate at which it runs. Mm. 
So we've got a simple-ish step-down gearbox, which is like something moving very fast. Stepping it down means that the last gear would be moving quite slowly, and that's the seconds and the minutes and the hour hands. So there'll be a gear stepping down between from the second to the minute to the hour hands because the hour hands obviously slower than the minute and so forth. So it's a stepping down of speed. Yeah, it's the other way around. The the weight right. hangs on the the slow gear. Yep. And then you've got a series of gears above that which progressively go faster and faster. Yeah. I'm just trying to um, get a sense of what this mechanism is. We've got a gearbox and that doesn't really change over the history of clocks, am I right? The, what does change is what this escapement mechanism, this regulator type of mechanism, that changes. Oh, look, there are hundreds of different designs and some of them are very basic and simple and some are highly sophisticated and really accurate. Yeah. It's, it's too, yeah. I mean, you really got to hop on the internet and just check out all different escapements. Yeah, but it is this, like the history of clockmaking and the invention, inventions of better and better clocks like the chronograph and what have you is essentially a history of escapement yeah, mechanisms. Yeah. yeah, it is. Oh, there, there are lots of other things attached to it as well, mm. but they're right. Yeah, there'd be different types of escapement, different power sources. You've got... Electromechanical clocks, which have got all kinds of electromagnets in there, which do other, do other magic stuff. Mm. And then you've got other escapements which don't impulse, you know, alternatively on the tick and the top, but just, you know, give the pendulum a nudge once a minute. Yeah, right. And those are ones which are really accurate because they don't interfere with the natural period of the pendulum. Yeah. So what – yeah, let's get back to your – clocks and get into this idea of why you'd make them in wood we've got a clearly there's a history behind that mm. and can you just tell us why you make wooden clocks well i don't just make wooden clocks i make other clocks too mm. in brass and steel and there's been a you know a progression in design mm. so i started off making clocks very much out of wood and then as I got exposed to other techniques I began to incorporate those as well mm. other materials um, too mm. and other materials yeah so yeah but why did you make them out of wood in the first place like what was the what what was so intriguing about that material which is a traditional material for clocks but not recently traditional well well, it goes back to my first – I made my first clock. I think I was about 14 or 15. Mm. And I was in my dad's workshop again. So I just cut out all the gears on the ba on the bandsaw. And look what I do. I mean, I grew up in this little country town outside of Johannesburg, but they had a really good library. Yeah, right. So I'd go there and get books on clocks and clock making, and there, there was a basic escapement mechanism – which was the tricky bit to make. Yeah. And oh, there were sections there on cutting gears and the tooth shape and how to get them to mesh properly. So I just get a lump of wood and I, you know, talk to my dad about what would be the best timber and he'd say, oh, you know, take a bit of this or a bit of that. And then, um, yeah, thickness it, turn it into a, a circular disc. 
and then scribe out the teeth with a set of compasses and then just cut them out on the bandsaw then just file them by hand. Yeah, I remember doing that. It took took me close to a year to make it. Mm. And then, you know, with a whole lot of filing and cutting and going back and debugging it and I finally got it to work and it was it was really magical. It is like, you know, something which which was alive. I can imagine that'd be such an achievement, hey. Yeah, I got a real buzz out of that. Yeah. Do you still have it? <laughs> I gave it to my mum. Uh, oops. I don't know if that's an oops. She might have loved it. I shouldn't, I shouldn't judge your mum. No, no, she loved it. No, she, she did. No, she was good. And then, and then she moved. Then my dad died, and then she moved to a retirement village. Mm. And then she had it in the storage section of the retirement village. Mm. And then without telling her, they just cleared it out. Oh, really? They just took it. Oh, I think it probably ended up on the skip somewhere, on mm. the dump. Yeah, it took it. Mm. <laughs> Buggery vinyl. I mean, maybe maybe somebody still got it. Who? Yeah. Oh, then I made another one, which is a really big monster, which was, oh, God, it was about a metre by a metre. And I had two wheels or two gears which were meshing, but I painted those. I really loved sort of abstract art, sort of Bridget Riley and all that kind of stuff, you know. Mm, mm. And so I worked on a design where I had all these radiating lines of different colours painted painstakingly with uh, acrylic paints of different shades and colours. And then there were sort of shades of blue. Mm. And had matching wheel on the other side with various shades of blue. And then when the two sets of shades sort of intermeshed and they got together, that's when it was like on the hour. Yeah. And then they'd go out of phase again. And then the next time, you know, you'd have to wait for another hour to get back into phase again. Yeah. <laughs> and then I remember photographing it with my mum and then she – you know, she said, but where's the dial? It just says, where the hands? Yeah, yeah. I said, oh, what do you mean, where the hands? This is an artwork. You know, yeah. This is a, a serious piece of kinetic sculpture. And then she said, I don't <laughs> She says, why don't you just stick a hand on it and a dial and you'll be able to sell it? And I thought, you know, I thought, oh, stupid woman, what would you know? And then, but she was right, you know, she was, you know, so I've sort of gone full circle. Mm. I'm not sure what happened to that one either. But that all disappeared when I left South Africa. Yeah. Tell us about South Africa. Uh, where do I start? Look, I remember growing up, and you know, as a kid, you're not really aware of any sort of the politics or whatever. But mm. you, I think my earliest experience of the apartheid state was sort of, I would have been about 10, 11 o'clock, uh, 11 o'clock, I'm talking about uh, 11. Yeah, yeah, no, it's okay. We, that's um, the, that's no. what we're going to do from now on in this conversation. It'll be all o'clocks instead of years. No, yeah. no, 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 we've got to move away from that. No. <laughs> no, I was about 10 or 11 years old and um, I was just tinkering away in the workshop. I think I was working on a model plane or something and then I just heard these footsteps coming down the driveway and heading past 
the workshop to the back of the block and followed by two white policemen. Mm. And finally they caught up. It was a black guy who was trying to get away from them. And I presume he was just, you know, a guy who didn't have a pass because you had to have a, so the pass laws restricted black movement in the towns. Mm. And these two white coppers just chased him, and I could just hear this yelling and screaming and cursing down the back of the workshop. And then they dragged him out to the um, the paddy wagon, and he was covered in blood. And I just felt sick. And, um, yeah, that was my first exposure to, you know, what is really going on. How did your parents feel about black and white relations and did they have any political kind of, or was it just non non-thing for them? No, it was, no. My parents migrated from from Holland in the 1938, 1939, mm. just war, and they were just pleased to be out of it. Yeah, yeah, right. So when they... You know, when I told my mom about this, you know, she was in tears. And yeah. but you know, they provided me with really, if it wasn't for them, they would they just provided me with a haven of sanity and humanity. Yeah. And um, yeah. So at the age of ten, you're not going to get a political sensibility, are you? You're just going to see a human being being beaten. Yeah. <laughs> How did, like, what's school like for you? What's um, the town like? What's Johannesburg like? Oh, this is late 60s, early 70s or mid-70s when I was 10 years old. Mm. So I grew up in a little town called Brackpan, which was about 50 miles east of Johannesburg. It was part of the gold mining reef. Yep. So it was, imagine a town the size of Ballarat or Bendigo or something like that, maybe a bit smaller. Quite a pretty town in the 19th We're talking about 50,000 people or? Yeah, 50, 60, 70, something yeah. like that. Mm. Um, industrial, gold mining. Yeah, it, is, it really was a hick town um, compared to, you know, people who came from the big smoke in Johannesburg. Mm. They'd always, you know, you, you were endlessly the butt of jokes. Yeah, you know? right. So mm. I remember when I went to uni, you know, people were, you know, giving their name, their their addresses, you know, the first year, of, you know, the first day of the uh, of the year to the lecturer and sort of, what's your address? And I said, Gardner Avenue, Brackband. And there was like a, a sharp intake of breath, you know. <laughs> Who is this person usurping our places? <laughs> yeah. But look, other than that, we're, we lived opposite this huge park and no one used it. I mean, it is just it was beautifully maintained, those buildings and gravel paths and everything like that. So I'd spend, you know, my my weekends and days just hanging around the park, riding my bike, playing with mates, playing soccer or footy or whatever. Mm. And so from that sense, it's quite idyllic. But talking about school, I mean, Jesus, I went to the Christian Brothers for ten years. Mm. Yeah. They've got a great reputation of um, looking after their students well, haven't they? They they certainly did, yeah. There's well-deserved reputation too, believe me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, look, I'd, I'd, 
I didn't experience any um, sexual abuse or anything like that, but it was just the canings and the beatings mm. and the bullying and, oh, it was just incessant, you know. Mm. Mm. And, you know, th- sort of thinking about it in hindsight, that's probably what drew me to my dad's workshop because it was like a safe space where I could forget about all that stuff at school. That's, and just, yeah, look, that's really pretty interesting. So... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's where the habit started of just finding solace in making stuff and, you know. I'm convinced that making things is incredibly therapeutic. Yeah, I'd agree with that, yeah. Mm. yeah. And I think when you're making stuff with your hands, especially with your hands, and especially if it's a little bit challenging, mm. you can get into a, a state that's not trance-like, but there is... Look, time disappears, and that is such an an incredibly healthy space to be in. Yeah, that's right, yeah. It doesn't always happen. No. I mean, other times, you know, but when it does, yeah, you can look out the window and you think, gee, it's dark already. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. It's great when it happens, but other times you've got so many other disruptions, uh, you know, but that's life. That's life. That's indeed right. So you go and study architecture at the university in Johannesburg, yeah? Yeah. Well, before I did architecture, I, I was in the army, actually. <laughs> right. Talking about the Christian brothers. I, went, I then went – I got drafted when I was 18. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Is, does everyone get drafted in, in South Africa? At that stage, they were, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. So there's a whole lot of people there that just didn't want to be there. Oh, shit, yeah, like 90% of them. Yeah. You know, this is 1973, I think, I did military service, and it was close to a year. Mm. And if you think the Christian brothers were bad, I mean, like, you know, these guys in the army, they were like bloody Christian brothers on steroids. It was just weird. So, yeah, I got close to the end of that, and then... I think I was going to be discharged in April or something, and then this was like over the Christmas period, and then I thought, hey, if I get if I get into uni, I can, you know, I can be out in like six weeks because the academic year started in February. Yeah. So I did a BSc, or I signed up for a BSc. Yeah, the Bachelor um, of Science. Yeah, and then. So, I mean, I didn't know what to do, and I just thought, ah, you know. So I enjoyed maths and physics and chemistry at school, so I did that, you know. And then, um, yeah, it is hard going. Um, It's a pretty tough course, but, you know, I got through at the end. And then I I found I was staying in residence then and some architects down the corridor. And these guys were just having fun, and I was looking at what they were doing, and I thought, wow, isn't that cool? You know, they, yeah. they were playing around with geometry. It was open-ended. They were up all night. They were just making really cool stuff. Yeah. So the following year, I switched to architecture, and, yeah, that's where I really found my tribe. Yeah. And you completed that, and did you work as an architect? Yeah, I did. I did three years in Johannesburg, and... 
then, and I did really well at that, and I, I, I really felt good about it. I was really comfortable there. And then the fourth year was a practical year. I had to do, I had to work for a practice. Mm. That would have been 76, 77 or something like that, 78, sometime around there. And they were in the middle of a recession. So there was mm. no work. Yeah. So I got a job in Amsterdam, of all places, in an oh, architect. Wow. And because my parents had come from there, you know, I still had family there. Yeah. Yeah, I worked in Amsterdam for a year and then the office moved to Leiden, which is a really historic university town just south of Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And building this thousand bed teaching hospital, yep. which is a massive project. And um, yeah, so I worked on that. Yeah, right. that was, Yeah, I really loved my time in Holland. I mean, they were just... So hospitable, welcoming, yeah, just wonderful people. Did you go back to South Africa? Nah, the the, the army were after me again. (laughs) (laughs) The bastards. You did so well in the army the first time, they pegged you as somebody they wanted to. They wanted me for another two years. Good God. (laughs) Why? Because they extended the military service. They were fighting some stupid bloody war in Angola. What? Want, yeah. Uh, go figure. Anyway, so, they, so I thought, bugger this. So I went to London, and then I you know, I'd saved quite a bit of money in, mm. in, in Holland because they paid really well. Yep. That was enough to push me through. So I had to do another two years to, to graduate. So I'd, I did that in London at a place called the Architectural Association, which is like a sort of private institute. Yep. And, um, yeah, that was great. I mean, just so many interesting people. Yeah. And you're probably working at the same time in London too, hey? Yeah, I was working on and off in in practices, yeah. Yeah. So that was the AA. I mean, actually, in, in hindsight, I actually think I had a better education in Johannesburg. Yeah, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, because, yeah, we really had tutors there who what they would do is they would send you into the city or the townships just to observe buildings and how people were using them and constructions. So I I remember some of the projects there, like, you know, they had one called Homemade Homes or Handmade Homes. Yeah, right. So I did a project on squatter developments. How, how squatters actually build their homes yeah. with the limited resources they had. Yeah. The word home is a pretty interesting one too, as opposed to a house or a dwelling or something. A home is something that you invest part of your soul into or something like that. I don't know what the – do you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, a home is an – it's got an emotional content. Mm. You know? The house is the structure. It's a pretty mm. cold object. Mm. But how these people could construct homes out of bits of tin and corrugated iron and bits of cardboard. Now, hang on a sec. Uh, I, look, the the word squatter in Australia has a very different connotation to the word yeah. squatter in Britain and in South Africa. What's a squatter? <laughs> yeah, you're right. In the Australian context, a squatter is like, the complete landed opposite. gentry. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. So when I'm talking about squatters in South Africa, I'm talking about people who are homeless, essentially. Yeah. People who have come from 
who just can't survive on in the rural homeland where they come from and are seeking employment on the periphery of the cities. Yeah. And because they're effectively illegal um, in, in apartheid terms, they yeah. qualify for, you know, accommodation in the, the sort of legal settlements which have been set aside for, for blacks. So police routinely come along and demolish them. These um, people then have to... De, you know, take their houses down and set them up somewhere else before they get raided again. Yeah, that was quite an experience. Look, yeah, and going to study that in an architectural um, sense is, God, there's a, I don't know what the right word, hypocrisy is not the right word, but there's a, yeah, there's a whole lot of things that you, I'd imagine you'd be going through your mind, hey? Well, if you think of architecture as an elitist profession or an elite profession, I was pretty fortunate to have tutors there who were willing to explore architecture in a broader sense, which mm. affects one. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, so from that point of view, I think I had a better education than I did in, in London. I mean, London, it was all... You had all these star architects, you know, you had Zaha Hadid and you had mm. Rem Nass and you had all the sort of, you know, they had all these silos. They were effectively silos and there was no discussion between them. Mm. So I gravitated towards a unit which was run by Rodrigo Perez, who was a Chilean who left during the Pinochet years. Mm. And I think... His interests in architecture were really based on architecture for the people, it was not an elitist construction. Mm. So that sort of interest, so I sort of gravitated towards that. Mm, I know? can see, I can see how that would be a good fit. Yeah. But then the irony is, when I left there, <laughs> I ended up working for Norman Foster. Yeah, I was going to say, I bet you went to Norman Foster. <laughs> he was the first person I was going to say when you said you, you were working in London. I thought, uh, he's working for Norman Foster. I have no idea how that happened. Actually, I do know how that happened. One of the tutors, actually, before I, uh, I was in Rodrigo's, you know, Peter Cook and uh, Ron Heron, and they were really, they were into... Uh, urbanism but they were like have you heard of instant city and they had programs in the 60s no. and 70s where they would do really innovative high-tech but quite whimsical urban structures which mm. could uh, which could be moved or demounted or taken apart so there was a sort of high-tech element to it mm. and i sort of tied in with London of the swinging 60s and stuff like that so between the two of them i sort of yeah, I found a sort of happy medium, I think. But then I wound up at, at Norman Foster's place and they were still in Great Portland Street and I had my portfolio of drawings and, I mean, I had no idea that I was going to get a job there. So I rocked up at this uh, this glass facade, this high-tech glass facade with, you know, these electronic doors with a little infrared sensor in the front. Mm. And I'm standing in front of the door and the bloody door wouldn't open. Mm. <laughs> so mm. I'm, I'm hovering around. By... It's a good good, play, good way to start. Yeah. 
<laughs> so I thought, stay calm, stay calm. And I took a, I took a step backwards and it spotted me, and then the doors magically. Yeah. Yeah. Then I walked in, and there was all these cool people walking around. So I went to the receptionist and said, I've got an appointment with Norman Foster. She said, oh, Norman will be busy with you in a moment. So I waited. And then, yeah, he was amazing. He just got me over, and he's basically got a drawing board and a desk, just like everyone else. It's like yeah, an open right. There's no hierarchy, no separate offices. So... Um, yeah, so it made me feel pretty good. And then yeah. I had this portfolio, which is like about two metres long and about 700 high, which I'd made myself. Yeah. Because I had these long, skinny drawings, which I really liked. So I made the portfolio to suit the drawings out of um, – uh, I got this vinyl from, was it Marks and Spencer and two long zippers and some aluminium stripping for the handle and I bought an old second-hand sewing machine and switched all off. <laughs> and I walk into this, this with my portfolio and there's Norman Foster and he, I put the thing down and he said, you know, put it down on his table and he unzips it and he says, where did you buy that? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, he's much more interested in the folio than the drawings. <laughs> oh, I made it. And he said, did you make that? I said, yeah. He says, what about the stitching? I said, oh, I've got a sewing machine. All oh, right. And, and what about, oh, right, okay. Yeah. And then, he, then he looked at the aluminium handle and he said, oh, you've, oh those are little recessed stainless steel bolts. I said, yeah, yeah, I got those from the hardware store and da-di-da. And he says, oh, that's really good. And then anyway, so he flipped through the drawings and he asked a few pertinent questions. And, I mean, none of my stuff was in the sort of foster medium. <laughs> You know what I mean? No. It was, it, was, it was a cross between, you know, Peter Cook and um, and Rodrigo Perez. But it didn't seem to bother him. And he said, yeah, that's cool. You know, go and talk to Sansa and we'll see you tomorrow. So that's how I started. So how many, how many people did um, he have working for him at that stage? Oh, shit. I reckon about 60, 70 or so. Mm, still pretty hands-on, eh? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it's massive now. I, they moved since then. I think they're down on the um, down the uh, Canary Wharf, mm. right on the, And if you look at the images there, they're just massive. It's like two, three hundred, and everyone's sitting behind a screen. No, oh, look, yeah, you kind of have to, yeah, yeah. Productivity's um, way higher on a computer than, pardon me, on a uh, old-fashioned drawing board. Mm. Well, I'm not too sure about that. Oh, I am. I'm 100% sure about that. Are you? Yeah, 100%. For, for certain kinds of drawings, I'd say yes. For doing, look, for doing routine repetitive stuff, if you've got a master drawing which needs to be updated, then, yeah, stick it on the computer. Mm-hmm. If you want to knock up a quick perspective just to have a look at how something's, you know, then... I'd be more comfortable on the drawing board. Yeah, look, that's that's fine. I think it's horses for courses up to a certain point, but my background's in engineering and I'd learnt on a drawing board in that mm. environment. And I graduated as an engineer just on the cusp of computers coming into drawing offices. And to give you an idea of how much more productivity you could have in an engineering sense and an architectural sense won't be too much difference. They went from 
20, I think, in this particular factory. It was an automotive mm. factory. Mm. 20 people on the drawing board to three. Yeah, no, I can understand that. Look, it's the way of the world now. There's bugger all you can do about yeah, it. Yeah, well, this is early, late 80s, late yeah, 1980s. Yeah. So it's a productivity increase. You've got a bit of an outlay of capital with the machinery, but over, you know, that that's outweighed by half a person over a year or something and you've you've dropped your um your workforce by six sevenths or something. Yeah, but I mean there's something look, if you're doing concept sketches, you can't do that on a computer. <laughs> I think you, you can. can. <laughs> I can. I do it all no. the time. But no, you know no, what? You do you know the fastest no. way to, to come up with concepts is by sketching. Yeah. And in the in that sense, yeah, you don't want to have a computer. I think the computer can get in the way of a free flow of ideas. It really that, locks Yeah. I think that's yeah. what you're talking about, isn't it? What I'm talking about is is the link between the hand and the mind. Mm. And preferably a grey lid or a pencil, you know, an mm. HB or a B pencil. And you can really, you know, examine an idea from different angles, different perspectives, different concepts, different layers, whatever, mm. so much more fluidly and so much more quickly. Mm. I agree. By hand sketching. I, I mean, it's yeah. like using hand tools. It's like, you know, it, it, you know, this is, you know, like, you know, how many people use hand tools? Well, there's a whole resurgence in the use of hand tools. And there is, I, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. Which I it, I think it's a little bit anachronistic. It's almost like a, a reaction against the digital age. It could be. It could be. It's but I still think there's a place for it because it gives an individual. It's the mark of the individual. Mm. I mean, I remember seeing a um, an exhibition. God, what is his name now? British art, an artist. It'll come. It's on the tip of my tongue. I just can't think. Not Bernard Leach. Eh? Not Bernard Leach. You're not talking no. ceramics here, are you? No, no, no. I'm talking about he did um, sketches and drawings on iPads. I don't, yeah, don't know. Yeah, anyway, it'll come to me. But they all seemed a bit forced. Mm. Um, now, he was exploring the medium of the iPad as a way of sketching and painting. Yeah. But at the end of the day, when you saw a line, it was still a uniform width line. There was no gradation. There was no depth to it. There was no... Dynamism. There was no scuff marks, you know. Mm. It, it lacked that individuality. Mm. And, and that's what hand tools do. They they give it that sort of, that touch where you know it's not machine made. You know somebody's carved that or chiseled that or scraped it. Yeah. Anyway. Do you think, um, yeah, do you think like a, people care? Oh. Some people do, some people don't. And that doesn't matter so much as the person that's using that hand tool. If they care, that's all that I'm, <laughs> I'm just trying to do. I'm not, I don't want to be confrontational here. Make no mistake. I'm trying to, like, I'm really curious about this idea of using oh, hand tools in, yeah, yeah. in preference to a more productive way of working. Okay, let, let's flesh this out a bit. Uh, I reckon there's a place for machine tools big time. Mm. 
Because the last thing you want to do when you're making a table is standing there, you know, in a salt pit with a you know, double. <laughs> <laughs> Only if you're upstairs. If you're down below in the in the pit, no, exactly. Got yeah, yeah. yeah. So there, there, there's definitely a place for a bandsaw, a table saw, a buzzer, thicknesser, all that kind of stuff, right? And what you want to do is you want to eliminate the drudgery. Mm. to the point where a more creative process can take over and a more creative approach and handling of the material. Yeah? yeah. Now, that's a hard one. Where you draw the line, I don't know. It'll, that line will go in different places for different people. How do you do yeah. it? What, what's, where's the line for you? <laughs> you do everything by hand. Use your teeth. You gnaw away at it. Are you, are you putting me on the spot now? <laughs> you don't, I don't mean to. I honestly, I'm, I'm just really curious to know what your thoughts are. I will use the machine. Look, it depends what you're doing. If you're running woodwork classes for people who want to lovingly stroke a piece of wood with a finely sharpened Japanese plane, mm. that's great. Yeah. If, if that's your bread and butter and that's your income, then you can spend all day doing that, right? But if, you've, if you're producing your work for a living, right, if you're making tables, chairs, cabinets, whatever, for a living, you can't afford to spend your day lovingly striking it with a Japanese plane. You've got to get that thing out of the way. So what you do is you use as much equipment and mechanisation as you need to get it to the point where a hand tool will make a difference to the feel and the quality and the aesthetics of the piece. Does that mm. make sense? Yep, totally does. Yeah. I mean, you have to, you know, to some extent, you have to sup with the devil, isn't it? I'm of a mind, though, that there is no devil. I don't think there's uh, – in, in, I don't want to – I don't want to make – put religious terms all over this, but um, there's no – what I should say is there's no good or bad in a methodology. I think it's whatever no, no. rocks your boat or in an economic sense, whatever makes it work for you. And I make furniture all day – uh, yeah. five days a week and I've done it for a very long time and I still use hand tools because there's an appropriate economic sense in that in in the one-off pieces that get made by me mm. if they weren't one-off pieces if they were more production pieces all of that would be mechanized mm. and you wouldn't need somebody like me doing it you could get somebody no, exactly. Somebody yeah, yeah. else. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. That's yeah. where the hand becomes the touch of the maker. I would use a hand tool because it was it's the quickest way to get the result. As opposed yeah. to having a quality. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it's completely appropriate economically. And that's mm. all. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, that, that's the woodworking side. On the metalworking side, I do all my own brass work. I cut my own gears yeah. in brass. I cut them in steel, in silver steel, which is as hard as anything. Yeah, right. And get them and then have them heat treated and then you've got to polish them and all that kind of stuff. That's where you need a machine. There is no... Mm. 
can't afford um, the inaccuracy, you know, of of, and that's where you know I've got a CNC machine which I use for that, and I'll set that up. I was going to ask if you had a CNC. Yeah, no, it's a retrofit. It's a, it's just a Bridgeport nil, but it's got uh, stepper motors on the various axes. Uh-huh. And, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely fantastic because I can set it up. And this is where, you know, it takes a lot of time and a lot of nous and a lot of finesse to set up a machine accurately mm. and to get the finish that you want People think that you just slam something in the machine and press the button and go and sit down and have a cup of tea. It doesn't work that way. No. No? You've got to make sure that there's no backlash. You've got to make sure that, um, you know, there, there's yeah. heaps. You've got to get the feed speed right. You've got to get the cutter speed right. Yeah. You've got to make sure it's indexing in the right direction. You've got to make sure that the cutter is up. You've got to look at the coolant. If, you use, if you're cutting in steel, you've got to use a coolant. You've got to make sure that there's swarf removal. Yeah. Do you know, what, what's going on here is there's a development of skills in using that equipment. And it, there's a development in skills if you're doing it by hand too, isn't there? That's right. There's a whole raft of skills you need to develop to get the machine to perform to the best of its ability. Mm. And it takes as much Nelson skill and refinement to do that as it would to use hand tools. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just a different tool. There's a book, a really wonderful book written by David Pye when late 70s, I think, called The Nature and Art of Workmanship. And in that book, he describes two methods. One is the workmanship of risk and one is the workmanship of certainty. The CNC mm. machine is the workmanship of certainty. You can, once yeah. you've got the machine set up and it's all working, it will do with great certainty and great accuracy exactly what you want that machine yeah. to do. The workmanship of risk is hand tool. It's like filing that little escapement by yeah. hand. And if you slip, toss that little <laughs> escapement in the bin because it's no good to you anymore. <laughs> and yeah. uh, it's an interesting – look, I still think about it as well. It, it, yeah, that's just an no, aside. Look, no, it's not an aside. There's a fair risk in, uh, in CNC machining as well. I mean, it just takes one glitch in the program, mm. yeah, and the thing goes uh, goes walkabout. I've had so many bingles on this machine, and near misses, you know. And that in itself, programming the damn thing is an art form in itself. Yeah. What's the programming? Are you using a little laptop, or are you using something a little bit more basic? No. Uh, look, when I got this machine, I got it second hand. It was lying in a million pieces in this dealer's um, warehouse. Right. So I got it home. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So I went off to one of the TAFEs here in Melbourne, the Box Hill TAFE, and they, mm -hmm. they had a CNC machining for a year, night classes. I got into that and... I was like a real rookie. I mean, I was this old bloke sitting in the back. This is about 10, 15 years ago when I first got it. No, mm. 15. And you had all these young guys there who were from Ford and Holden, and they'd been working these great big machine stations all day. Yeah. <laughs> uh. and, and 
I, I was totally intimidated. And now what we did was just programming by geometry. So you had you had to work from coordinates. Yep. So you had to work straight line to curve and then curves to, you know, um, whatever other geometric shape there was. And you had to work the coordinates for... And these guys didn't know what they were doing because they were used to cam modelling. You know, everything was done on cam modelling, which mm. just spat out the G-code. Yeah, and the cam is computer-aided manufacture. Uh, modelling, yeah. Computer-aided modelling. Or computer-aided drafting, CAD. Yep, CAD, yep. Yeah. So they make so, a little model in the in the CAD and then it just yeah, automatically has a toolpath and yeah. Yeah. So what we were doing, we were actually drawing the toolpath in G code yep. from from basically a calculator and a piece of paper. And um, suddenly these guys were stuck. They didn't know what to do. And they were I could see the guy in front of me like Googling Pythagoras and what <laughs> What is Oops. science? <laughs> I needed to study. I needed to, to make sense of that schooling that I, I forgot about. That I thought I'd never use again. So, but. so, so I sort of walk up, you know, and I got chatting to these guys, and I said, "Oh well, you know, this is, you know, I'd finished my worksheet in about, you know, three minutes, and these guys are still battling through what is sine and cos and tan, mm. and." So I'd give them a quick tutorial in that, and then the quid pro quo was. I was absolutely shit scared of operating that machine centre because you had to, you know, dial in, you had to zero it, and there were all these steps you had to And if you missed one step, this thing would just go ballistic. Mm. In a dangerous way, would you likely lose a finger or something? Or? No, no. You've got these sliding screens in front, but you'd have yeah. a bing, you know, you'd probably lose a cutter or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so... Anyway, that was a. But I, I learned enough programming there to actually do it myself. Yep. So look, if it's a simple thing, I'm, then I'll just I'll just do the code myself. But if it's a more complex shape, then I use what's called ArtCam, which is an engraver's package. Oh, okay. Jeweler, jeweler engraver. And, yeah, you can do all kinds of amazing stuff for that. And you can, you can even do 3D shapes. Yeah, right. And stuff. And then you can even upload a photograph into it, and it scans, it sort of three-dimensionalizes that. Yeah, right. We kind of touched on this, but do you have a preference? Like, would you use that in preference to another milling machine? You've probably got a few milling machines, I guess. But Yeah, I've got a few. Look, if it's a quick job, and I need the flexibility of being able to think while I'm fig while I'm figuring something out. Then I'll do it on the manual mill yeah. because I can look over and say, "Oh, that's got to be a little bit bigger. Oh, I'll take that down a bit more." Mm. You know, yeah. using it pretty much more like a hand tool. Yeah, yeah. Whereas when I'm gear cutting, I know exactly it's got to be that exact size, it's got to be indexed so many times and I don't want to stuff around, I just want to have it absolutely spot on. Yeah, and you've probably done a lot of those programs already and you've got a sort of a, a file of yeah, various yeah. sizes and shapes and you just plug it in. Mm. So actually let's, um, let's just step back and figure out how you came to Australia. So you're in London, you're working for Norman Foster and probably earning fairly well. And doing some pretty interesting projects. Yeah, when I got to, um, well, I was, in, I was in London for about a year, 
uh, in the office there. And we had some really interesting projects like the BBC headquarters and a few others which didn't go ahead. But um, I then got on to the Hong Kong-Shanghai Bank project and they were doing the detailed design in the London office. And at that stage, they then moved to Hong Kong. So there were about 12 architects which were sent out yeah. to handle various contracts on that project. So, yeah, I was in Hong Kong for, what, about three, four years? Good God. How was that? Oh, it was amazing. I loved it. It was, oh, you know, I'd met my wife then and we moved over together. Yeah. An absolute vibrant city. Yeah. There was so much going on. I was working like 60 hours a week. Good God. Yeah, it was pretty insane. And then weekends, you know, we'd go to the outlying islands and go go to the Northern Territories and just have a look at little villages, rural architecture, Chinese architecture. Yeah, I loved the place. It is just such a high-energy city. Yeah. And were kids involved at this stage? No, no, we didn't have kids at that stage, no. Was your wife an architect too? Or is she an architect? No, no, she started, she, she was from Holland and she worked as a jeweller. Yep. She trained as a jeweller in Holland and then she got a job in London for, gosh, what is his, Andrew Greemer, who was a sort of high-end society jeweller. He used to make these big sort of chunky rings and brooches for Princess Margaret and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so she worked there as as a jeweller, as a manufacturer, maker. And then, yeah, she came with me and we went to Hong Kong together and then tried to sort of do some jewellery on her own, but it didn't. It was a very isolating experience for her in many ways. It would, I can imagine, yeah, and yeah. yeah. Make it pretty stressful, I would think. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, when I was working 60 hours a week, you know, she was either socialising with, you know, many of the other partners of the guys working there. Mm. It was a bit of an expert network, Mm. which was in itself a bit sort of limiting, you know. But we did manage to meet a lot of local people as well, local Chinese, and that was really refreshing. Mm. Oh, she worked for our. Actually, we had a really nice model maker. Uh, he was a Chinese guy, and he had a model making firm. Mm. And then she started doing metal work for him, sort of brazing and soldering and making sort of constructions out of steel and brass. Yep. Soldering lattices and stuff. So it was like sort of large jewelry, really. Yeah. Yeah, with a purpose as opposed to just purely decorative. And so from Hong Kong, why leave that office? I'm assuming just on the time frame you come to Australia at this point. Yeah, that would have been, I think I got to Hong Kong, it would have been early 80s. And then the Hong Kong bank project wound up. And then I applied to come to Australia. There were a lot of Australians actually on the building site. There were engineers, surveyors, mm. etc. And I got you know got to know these guys quite well. And they said, "Oh, why don't you come to Australia?" And so I went on holiday. Mm. I had a camper van, travelled around, and just loved it. And then 
So when the project ended, I thought, right, this is it. I'm out of here. I mean, I had the option of going back to London again and working for the office there. Mm. But I just, I couldn't see myself working in London for the rest of my life. It is just, you know, it is just grey. It is more of the same. I don't know. It's just, I just wanted the the space and the sunshine and the openness. Mm. And you didn't want to go back to South Africa. That's, That's really clear, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, I couldn't go back there. Did your um, siblings uh, leave South Africa too? Yeah, I've got one sister who's in France. Uh, My brother was, he studied medicine. And then, yeah, towards his, his, he died some time ago. But he ended up in the UK as well. And I've got two older sisters in South Africa still. Yeah. Just thinking like that regime just created a huge drain of awesome people. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, of of, of my classmates, well, say at university, I'd say three quarters of them wound up either in UK, USA, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Yeah. You know, There's a heap of woodworkers just that we know, you and I know, here in Australia at the really high level and they're all kind of in their 50s and 60s. And I'm just wondering, like, what is it about South Africa and craft? Is there a strongly, like, in, in people growing in South Africa, is, is craft and art a valued thing? That's it's, it's a very powerful point. I think it's become increasingly so. And if you just go back a few spaces, um, I mean, South Africa, or should I say the Cape and the surrounds of Cape Town, really has got a strong identity in terms of Cape Dutch architecture, Cape Dutch furniture, mm-hmm. which is which is very unique and very distinctive. And, you know, Neil Erasmus will fill you in on that. You know, he comes from that background. Mm-hmm. But after apartheid, when Mandela got in, he tried everything to ensure that the white skill base would be retained. He was about building bridges and ensuring that, you know, the people responsible for the running of the country, that, you know, the engineers and doctors and whatever would retain. But I just think the legacy of apartheid was so overwhelming that... They were, you know, the country just slid into economic decline. There was a population explosion which couldn't be dealt with. Mm. There was then corruption, nepotism, whatever, at virtually every level of government, which, you know, would would jeopardise the effect of running of an economy. Mm. Uh, there were so many vested interests who wanted to get their slice of the cake and just sheer greed. You know, foreign investors have been turned out. It's become one of the most unequal societies in the world. It was unequal in, you know, the apartheid era between black and white. But now it's just as unequal between the rich and the poor or those Mm. with those without jobs. Mm. This is a long... I'm coming around to the point of where how does craft fit into all this? You've got about... 50% 50% of the population or thereabouts that just don't have a job. Mm. 
So their means of survival is craft markets, craft stalls, making stuff from heaven knows, telephone wire, plastic bags, bottles, you know, carvings, mm. pottery, ceramics, woodwork, whatever, whatever they can lay their hands on. And I was there oh, a few years ago, and you just drive through and you see these little stalls at street intersections or road intersections, and people are selling their stuff. You know, that's, that is the role of craft in South Africa at the moment. It's a means of sustenance. That's all they've got, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, it's a very powerful means of employment at the moment. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking um, Depression-era activities like Australia and the UK yeah. and America's got a, you know, the Depression-era furniture or jewellery or whatever, just stuff made out of um, things off the side of the road. Yeah, I, I suppose it would be equivalent to that. Mm. When you walk in, work in, when you work, when you walk into the workshop, what brings you the most joy? Uh, well, it's a good question. Look, if a project's coming to completion, it's the, you know, you never really know how it's going to work out until you've finally finished it. Mm. And even then, very often it takes the abstraction of the photograph to really get a feel. You know what I mean? I do. I so do. I don't even know if you can if you can see it, whatever you've done then. Sometimes it takes months and yeah, years yeah. before you can yeah. see it for yeah. what it is. Yeah. Oh, look, I mean, for me, the joy of the workshop is just, it's the open-ended exploration of, you know, where it's going to take me. Yeah. That's, the, that's what it is to me. Yeah. What about decoration? You make functional objects, clocks, but mm. is the decorative aspect of those objects important for you? Oh, put it this way, there's no applied decoration. Um, look, you, you can look at it from two ways. You can say um, aesthetically it doesn't need it because it's made of so many different components, made from different timbers, different materials. Um, so it's a composition of forms and shapes, which is inherently complex. And if I were to add decoration to that, it would just confuse and confound and mm, I disrupt. understand. Although well, a lot of the early clocks were decorative, weren't they? There was a scroll work and oh, yeah. etchings and... Even moving parts that were completely, you know, not not um, used for telling time. Yeah, yeah. Now you're right. I mean, there's a, there's a very fine tradition of, say, the the English long case clock, where they did marquetry. Mm. You know, late 1600s, early 1700s. I mean, those are exquisite pieces of furniture, and yes, they're highly decorated. But you know, the other side of it is, I've got to earn a living. So once I've made the movement and I make the movement and the clock as a sculptural piece, which is visible all around. Yep. So that, in a sense, is the appeal and uh, the attraction to it. Mm. And at that stage, I've, if I'm going to survive, I've run out of hours. I, I really can't then go along and do inlay and intarsia mm. or anything mm. else. You know, 
I have to tailor the design in such a way that the the, the functional object it you know becomes the design and and the piece itself without yeah. any extraneous element. Although your mechanisms of, often have a framework around them, is that is that part of the clock? Is that keeping it safe and um, yeah. humidity controlled? So there's that's an inherent part of the object as well. Yeah, I mean, you can make if it's a very large sculptural clock, then you can expose it and put it outside. But look, if you want to be practical they'll be very troublesome because they'll gather dust, the pendulum mm. will knock them, whatever. You you know, you'll have the cat swinging on the pendulum and stuff like so. <laughs> Especially if you put the cat on there specially and take a video of it because you want to see what the cat's going to do. I don't advise anyone does this, by the way. Uh, no, look, I've learned the hard way. I, I sort of went down that route initially mm. and I just thought, nah put it inside a case, and then it becomes, the cabinet becomes part of the design. So you've got to design the cabinet and the movement, the whole thing in one piece. Yeah. So it's like an extension. It's one technique that runs all the way through. Yeah, yeah. Is there many material choices in the in wood that you can use, or are you have you selected um, specific woods to do the gears and specific woods to do the escapement, and you really can't deviate too much just because of the quality of the material? Look, the ones that I have, look, I haven't made a lot of clocks which are with wooden gears, wooden wheels, uh-huh. um, just because it's so time-consuming. It just takes forever. Mm. So because, you, got, yeah. because I don't make them as a solid disc. I make them in segments. So if you imagine a pineapple ring, you know, with the grain running radially outwards. Yeah. I have to laminate every segment. I then have to make sure that the segments coincide with a gap between the teeth, not in the middle of the teeth. Yeah. I then have to machine a spline on the inside, which runs at right angles to the grain, so it ties it all together. I then have to mill the teeth. I then have to centre bore it. I then have to make the spokes out of solid timber which are long grain and which have got a little disc in the middle to lock it into place. I then have to make notches in the perimeter so it all fits together. And that's all precision work, which is so time-consuming. Mm. And, you know, for all the effort, I could get a sheet of brass, cut it out, and I'd be done in 10 seconds comparatively, yeah? Yeah. But there's still an attraction to making it out of wood. Yeah. And I've made several. Actually, I've made a lovely one. Oh, this is about eight, nine years ago, um, out of a crate. It was that, you know, that uh, Ward Petherbridge. <laughs> uh, create from a crate. It yeah. is a wood competition. It is, you know. Yeah, yeah. Every man and his dog was doing that. And I got, you know, I got said, come on, we'll make me a clock. So I said, all right, I'll make a clock. So. I made a clock out of it, and I pulled this pallet apart, which came from the U.S., and I looked at the timbers. There was American red oak. There was white oak. There was elm. There was cherry. There was spalted beech. There was rock maple. It was incredible. And what these guys were doing there, they were just plundering a local uh, hillside or something and just chopping down 
everything they could find, yeah. into boards and turning it into pallets, and then shipping stuff to you know like engine blocks and stuff to to Australia. Yeah. So, so once I opened up the timber and saw inside, you know, it, I thought, hey, this is a real challenge. So I made the gears out of oak, which is what John Harrison did. You know, the Harrison, the English clockmaker. Yeah. The- the dude who invented or made the first yeah. chronograph, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I researched him quite intensely and then did my own version of his oak gears. Yeah. And then I used a combination of, you know, cherry and beech and all the rest of it, and uh, maple and sycamore and whatever else they had. And I built this clock, and it's it just came out. It was really magic because it had that sort of freedom and spontaneity mm. um, about it. But it was all sort of playful as, at the same time, and it worked like a treat. It was really good. Yeah. And it's got the story of the materials behind it too. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, so I enjoyed those projects, you know. So I mean, I've got a few more lined up like that when I, when I've got more time. So you know, I sort of move between different materials. I do something in brass, and then I'll do it in in mm. solid, and then I'll try something in another material. So uh, yeah, and everyone's got a different look and a different feel. Yeah, and clocks are clearly like still part of your life after all these years and um, why is it what is it about a clock well I think it just goes full circle to what I said before it's you're making something which is alive which is moving you know Mm. but there's also another aspect which is you know clocks become heirloom pieces yeah and they sort of get embedded in people's families. And like I've got two sons and so <laughs> I've got all my my prototype pieces or ones that didn't quite make the grade or ones that needed further refining at home. And so I'm going to upgrade those and give those to my sons and the grandkids. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I find I get clients who, you know, they've had a clock for 20 years and then suddenly they've got grandchildren and they want to have something to commemorate, you know, the birth of their first grandchild. So they commission and that's going to be her clock when she grows up or when she gets 20, turns 21. Mm. So, yeah, clocks become really kind of thing which become part of people's family and family heritage and get passed on. Mm. Yeah, furniture once did that too Yeah, and it still can I don't see why not No, I don't see why not either Except that I don't I think furniture can become Because of its size It can just become a bit of an anchor Yeah, I don't know I mean, it depends on when and where it's made And how it's made With what purpose it's purchased Yeah I agree. I'm sitting at a table right now that was built in 1860 in Australia. Yeah, right. And it was mere hundreds of dollars to buy it. It's quite big. Was it made in Adelaide? Um, I can't say for certain. It's made out of Australian red cedar. Okay, so it'll be East Coast definitely. I would 
imagine it'd be made in Sydney. Yeah, yeah, that's where I think it. And there's no there's no maker's mark, but it's all like the the legs are like um, just looking at them now. They're like five inches square. They're all turned, obviously, yeah. not obviously because you can't see them. But like the the material uh, the, and the boards of the top, it, they're wide as wide. Like they're like um, just looking at it now. Mm. They're like six hundred millimeters wide each board, and there's three. It's it's an awesome table. It's got so much character, and yet clearly nobody wanted it because that's yeah. the cost of it. Anyway, it's uh, so was it was it painted or did you no, restore it? Or? No, it's as is. Yeah, well, that's the way it. to do it. Just keep it. Keep it. Absolutely, keep. It. I love it. Yeah, yeah. I sit at it all the time. We have dinner on it. I work on it. I'm talking yeah. on it right now. I've got all my things here. I love yeah. it to pieces. Look, I'm optimistic. I think that there are enough people in Australia with good sense and good taste who can see the value in that. And, you know, if if I look at, you know, there, there's a whole new generation coming through, people in their late 20s, 30s, furniture designers and makers. Mm. And... You see the exceptional stuff they're doing. It's just mind-blowing, and it's done with such dedication mm. and... Refinement. Yeah, total, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure that those are works which will resonate through the ages, through, through time, mm. you know? They've got it. I can't see stuff like that ending up on the skip. Neither can I. Look, a lot of these conversations I've been having, there's a sense that, you know, I I don't want to use the word revival, but it does seem to me that there is a little bit of a revolution going on. People are very interested in using their hands to do things, not necessarily vocationally, which might once have been important, but definitely as a pastime, as a way of getting in touch with parts of a world that is important. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that's growing as well. I I think it is growing. I think it's – look, personally, I think it's important for me, but I think a lot of people find it important for them too. So we're not talking about giving up the day job. We're just talking about having one or two days a week plus a day on the weekend, one evenings a week, day on the weekend, you know, mucking around with stuff, tinkering. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, if if I look at, say, stuff happening at the exhibition at Sturt, I mean, the place is absolutely buzzing. Mm. Sturt is a school in Mittagong in New South Wales. It's the Sturt Gallery, which is the exhibition that you just mentioned. At Sturt, you can do courses in jewellery and ceramics and woodworking, and I think that's all, maybe one other medium. But they've got a great little gallery there, and right now we're talking the start of March 2020, you can go and see an exhibition of Studio Woodworkers Australia members, which is called Edge. Yeah, good plug. Good plug, Adrian. Mm. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was a great weekend. And I'd say, you know, in the past nine, 
eight, nine months, we've had an uptake in new members, which has been really good. And um, about a third of the makers work on display uh, is the work of new members. Mm. Are these young people? Or yeah. Just, yeah. Well, it's a cross-section. Yeah, quite a few younger people. Yeah, and they've brought a whole new energy and a whole new vibrancy. Yeah, yeah. And are they doing it um, like professionally, full time, or is there a sense that there's other other economic imperatives that they've got to? No, no, it's hard to know. I mean, I, I don't know them well enough at this stage. No. Most of them are based up, you know, up and around Sydney. But from the makers, I mean, there's a whole bunch of makers in Melbourne at the uh, what was the Meat Market Craft Centre. Yeah. But they're an exceptional bunch of makers here. And um, quite a few, I'd say most of these guys are doing it, you know, for a living. It's certainly not a sort of hobby. Mm. Um, some are doing exceptionally well and others are still finding their feet, but I'm sure they'll get there. Yeah, it's pretty heartening to see that. Yeah. If you're out there and you're listening, go for it. Uh, what are the new challenges coming up for you? New challenges for me? Look, I'm just going to carry on as best I can. I've sort of gotten to the stage where the more you know, the more you think you know, the more you realise how little you actually do know. <laughs> Goodness. You know, it's, it sounds a bit depressing, but I think it's I think it's not depressing in the slightest. I think it's the most amazing thing, isn't it? You've got all this new, there's all new stuff to learn. All this think? new stuff to learn, absolutely. It's kind of like a whole vista's yeah. been opened up. Yeah. So I've got a shitload of work ahead of me. I'm gonna. I'm making. What am I doing? I've been planning on making a clock which has got astronomical functions. Yeah. So I'll have day, date, calendar, a sunrise, sunset, phases of the moon, tide, stuff like that. Yeah. So. You can, yeah, okay. Hmm? Yep, yep, because the tide would be related to the phases of the moon, I take it. Yeah, yeah, it's a subset of that function, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So it's like you know, I'd like really burnt out a few brain cells getting the gear ratios because you've got to get you've got to get from the key wheel is a twelve or twenty four hours a day. You take that as the sort of central point. Then you've got to the lunar period is what's it twenty nine point five three one six eight seven etc etc. <laughs> Keep going. You've got to work. People are noting this number down. <laughs> yeah, and then you've got to work out the the mean solar year, which is three hundred and sixty-five point two eight four nine. Blah 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 blah. Mm. Going to point. And so I was travelling with my mate to Brisbane on this road trip, and I had my, uh, we were looking out the window and. So anyway, I had my calculator there, so I started to work out just various ratios by hitting this, mm. and I was getting pretty close. I was getting to within about five, ten minutes a year. Okay, is that is that okay? Is that acceptable? <laughs> well, it depends who you put the question to. 
yeah, yeah. For you, probably uh, not, but yeah. No, 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 no. So anyway, so I was talking to a woodworker mate of mine, Rob Allen, from the Victorian Woodworkers Association. He's our treasurer. Mm. And, and wood, uh, Rob was a was an engineer. Yep. And he loves playing with maths and doing stuff like that. So um, I was chatting to him on the phone. And while I was chatting to him, he says, what are those numbers again? So I gave him a bunch of ratios. And I said, okay, daddy, daddy. And he said, okay, just hold it on behind Excel spreadsheet. So he basically asked Excel spreadsheet to convert 24 hours into 365.537, da, 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 to about 12 decimal places. <laughs> and, and I kid you not, in about three seconds, the thing spat out the answer. <laughs> and it was accurate. And we sat down for a few minutes and we worked it out. It was accurate to about 1.02 seconds a year. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I reckon. That'll that, do it. <laughs> that's good enough, Rob. That's it. Yeah, done. Uh, <laughs> so now you've got to make it to that accuracy, don't you? If you like... No, well, now I've got the ratios. And, you know, so now it's like I've got the recipe, put it that mm, way. I've got yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I've just got to make the ingredients. Mm. How accurate can you make these things if you've got – okay, so you've got your ratios, which is obviously just yeah. a mathematical thing. Yeah, yeah. How accurately can you make something? Oh, look, on the machines I've got, I can do about a thou, a thousandth of an inch. That's 0. 0.0001 of an inch or 0. 0.0025 of a millimetre. Yeah. So – that's really accurate enough for what I'm doing. Yep. Um, Does it, a, yeah. All of those are inaccuracies, even though you're working to a thou, tolerance of a thou, um, all of those accuracies would probably compound themselves. What sort of accuracy can you get at the end result? So you've, you've calculated your ratios to within a second a year. No, it won't keep time to a second a year. I can guarantee you of that. Look, the accuracy of the clock depends on the stability of the pendulum. You want something which has got a heavy mass, well secured onto a rigid, preferably brick or concrete wall. Mm -hmm. um, you put it in a semi-vacuum, impulse it, you know, once every 30 minutes or something like that, and you'll have a, a time – you'll have a pendulum which will keep time to within – say, a second in a 100 days. Yeah. Yeah. At that sort of accuracy, you'll be able to pick up seismic activity. Yeah, right. Yeah, you, you, you'll pick up the motion of the moon and the tides. Yeah. Because you've got that water sloshing around, which affects G, you know, uh, gravitational attraction. Uh-huh, yeah. Which affects the period of the pendulum. Yeah. And our mate of mine's built a clock like that. He started life, he's in his 80s now, well in his 80s. Tom Hollinger is his name. And he he started life as a watchmaker and then he worked for the CSIRO. And then he manufactured gearboxes with his brother, racing gearboxes. Yeah. You know, the gearboxes that went in, in the cars that did the Bathurst uh, races, yeah. the Fours and Holdens. And now they're manufacturing gearboxes for... BMW, Porsche, Maserati, and other, play, you know, cars mm. like that. 
But he's built a clock which, yeah, it does, I'd say, about a second in 100 days. But that's been machined to, oh, he's chasing it. You know, if I'm chasing a thou, I'm lucky to get two or three thou. He's chasing like a tenth of a thou. Yeah. It'd be even hard to measure those sorts of. Oh, it's so, yeah. No, you need like, special. You need, yeah. Like yeah. You, you wouldn't be able to see that with your naked eye. No way. No. no way. But having somebody like that to, he's been a real mentor to me. Yeah. Uh, he first saw my very first clocks when I was, God, it's about 30 years ago. I had a little stand at the Timber and Working with Wood show in the, um, in the, the old exhibition building in Melbourne. The exhibition building in Melbourne, yes. That's yeah. Right. The old Victorian exhibition building. Mm. And I had a stand there, and I had a couple of these big sculptural wall clocks. And I saw this guy, this elderly guy coming up, and he's looking at it and peering at it, and then he'd wander off again. And then you know, an hour later, he'd be back there, there, he'd be peering. <laughs> and it got a bit awkward after a while. And then I said, you know, can I help you? And he said, oh, did you make that? And I said, yeah. And he said, oh, that's very interesting. You know, why did you do that and that? And I told him. And he said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that's that's really good. And then he said, oh, and what about this over here? And he said, have you heard of so-and-so? And he mentioned John Harris. And I said, yeah. 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 And then he said, uh, have you heard of so-and-so? And he said, yeah. And then he said, um, now, why did you make the gears that way? And I told him. You know, basically, I was just re- using router cutters, just, you know, bog standard. Yeah. Carby tool router cutters of sort of an approximate radius and stuff. And he said, oh, that looks very interesting. And he said, what module is it? And I said, module? What's a module? (laughs) (laughs) And a module is is just, you know, it's simply the the number of teeth divided by the diameter. So it gives you the size. I yeah. didn't know what he was you know. So he said, Oh, come over to you know, come over to the factory and I'll show you some stuff. And then he showed me he took me to this uh, this gearbox factory. Yeah. And they had all these workstations and he he made up a little fly cutter for me to cut the gears with a correct sort of radius and mm. shape it. And, you know, thirty years later he's still a very dear friend. And, yeah. I don't know where I would be without him, to be quite honest with you, because I've learned so much from him. Yeah, and he's he's working in an industry where that sort of precision is just absolutely necessary. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. like you can't have a gearbox seize up and drop out of a car that's just no, no, verboten. No. So, yeah. Yeah, and uh, like there's all sorts of machines and materials that is disposable that you'd never have an option to get a hold oh, of or absolutely. look at. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, if I'm machining the pinions, you know, I was having trouble because the steel was just so hard. So he says, yeah. well, what did you And he, he got another alloy, which they had in the in the machine room there. And he says, why don't you try that? You can case harden that. Yeah. So, so he gave me a slightly different alloy, which just machines like butter. I mean, it's yeah. absolutely you know, but that stuff just isn't readily available. Yeah. You've got to buy, like, massive quantities to make it pay. Even if you could find out what the code of that particular material was yeah. and who supplied it, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And then yeah. you'd probably have to get it from the States or from Switzerland or Germany or something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah. you come to Australia. We did you ever work as an architect here in Australia, or did you just start? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, so I left Hong Kong, and then I got to Australia, and I got several job offers when I was here. Yeah, cool. Did you come straight? Did you go straight to Melbourne? I did. Yeah. What, what was the attraction of Melbourne as opposed to, say, Sydney or Brisbane or Alice Springs? Look, I had friends here. Yeah, pretty good reason. Yeah. I mean, I knew absolutely nobody. And so anyway, I, I rocked up. And then I, I, I was working for this developer. I had offers, you know, offers for working at, you know, quite prominent firms here. But I got this offer from this developer which, I mean, he was paying me twice as much as the other, so I thought, bugger that, I'm going to work, I'll work for you. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Why would you and do that? Yeah, I get it. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> at that stage, I, you know, I had this idea rolling around the back of my head that I wanted to jack in architecture. Yeah. Um, and I thought, I'll, I'll rake in as much cash as I can and then get out of it and then set up, you know, a woodworking. Yeah, you went, you didn't want to do uh, practice as an architect just on no. your own, no. Yeah. I'd, I'd uh, oh, look, you become part of the building industry, you know, and at the moment, the way it, the building industry is going, you know, it's a far more, you know, you've got project managers which are taking over, you've got all kinds of commercial pressures. I just couldn't see myself in I, I just wasn't enjoying it. No, you know? yeah, yeah, fair it's, enough. It's soul destroying. It is awful. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I got into the. Oh, at the same time, I did a master's in urban design at the RMIT. Yeah. And that was a three-year part-time course, which I did while I was working for this developer. So that sort of helped to balance the scale somewhat. Yeah. And then, purely by chance, I. I was going through one. Oh, part of the deal was that I had to tutor architecture students, third and fourth year students, as part of my uh, master's thing. Yeah. So I did that. And then one lunchtime, I was looking at the telephone directory for all the various departments in the RMIT. And I was going through and I saw School of Clock and Watchmaking. <laughs> I thought, hey! <laughs> <laughs> And, How did I miss um, that before? <laughs> and then so they were up near the uh, near the Victoria Market in Franklin Street. There was like this little red brick industrial building which I'd walked past a million times. Yeah. So anyway, I went up one lunchtime and knocked on the door, and there was a shuffle behind the door, and then the door opened, and there was this guy who looked like a garden gnome. He had this enormous grey beard with a huge smile. And he said, hello, can I help you? And I said, oh, is this the school of clock and watchmaking? Yeah, 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 this is the school of... <laughs> and that was, that was Wally Burkhardt. He was a, um, a German watchmaker, but the loveliest guy ever. Mm. And um, he told me, and he said, oh, we're doing evening classes, and then we, you can do a full year apprenticeship. So I did the, the evening classes for a couple of years. Mm. When, when I finished my master's, I thought, right, that's it, bugger it, I've, I've had enough of this. Um, I'm going to do watchmaking now or clockmaking. Yeah. So then I um, 
I did a full year apprenticeship course with, um, at the RMIT with Wal Burkhardt. And I'll tell you, it was, a, it was the most enjoyable year I had. It was yeah. just absolutely fantastic. There were about five students, six students, I think. There were two mature age students, including myself, and then there were a couple of other young guys who really didn't want to be there. Yeah. But, yeah, and that's where I learned, you know, basic watchmaking, taking the movement apart without destroying it at the first, you know. <laughs> yeah, so I learned loops there, yeah. Your fingers can't shake, can they? Do you know nah. what I mean? Like, if you, oh, no. <laughs> there'd be people out there that if they tried to take a watch apart, it'd be like, <laughs> where's that bit gone? Oh my God. And their fingers are like, and even, you know, my, my fingers aren't too bad. They don't shake that bad. But these days, yeah. I don't think I'd be able to take a watch apart. <laughs> no. It, it sort of helps having a steady hand. Oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. But look, you learn all kinds of techniques. You mm. know, you rest. You use the, your wrist to steady your hand. You have a wrist guard or a wrist rest. There are all kinds of things around that. Yeah, cool. And did you go and work as a, like a professional? I mean, you are a professional watchmaker, but do you know what I mean? Like in a more commercial sort of setting rather than an art setting? No, no I wouldn't call myself a commercial watchmaker by any stretch of the imagination. It's, mm. If I done the trade and gone into watchmaking, watch repairing for the next five or ten years, and I'd say, yes, I'd call myself a watchmaker. Mm. Look, I'd develop basic skills in the first year so I could take a watch apart. And towards the end of the year, Walt Burkhardt, we had, he had this big cake tin with just a jumble of old watches from mm. the 90s. 40s and 50s, and he'd say, just randomly pick a, a, a watch out and say, here you go, have a, have a go at this today. And I'd take it apart, analyse what is going wrong, put it through the cleaner. It's got a broken balance stuff. I'd go to the material house, I'd measure it up, get a replacement part, fit it, poise it, put it back in the, in the movement, uh, get it running, put it on the timing machine, stuff like that. But you know, having said all that, I wouldn't want to get into the into the watch or the clock repair trade. It it really is a thankless task. I can totally imagine. It does seem to me that what you did was you took your architecture and your design skills and your your materials knowledge and skills and and just applied it to something that you obviously had a passion for. Yeah. Yeah. And when I started, I had absolutely no idea where it would end, where it would take me. So after I finished the course with Wall, he would come over with his mate, Charlie Brown, who was uh, another tutor who had had just uh, resigned. Uh, He was, you know, getting on a bit. So they would come over to the workshop and they would show me how to set up the machine tool to do screw cutting, taper turning, Mm. give me bits and pieces, you know, show me how to eliminate eliminate chatter in cutting the gears. Mm. Yeah, just heaps of little tips like that. Yeah, especially if it's on your machines. Oh, yeah, absolutely, because they can... You know, 
you get yourself a lathe, say, and it's not working right, is it me or is it the lathe? You don't even know. Like, unless you've had a lot of experience, but to have somebody come over who's yeah, knows exactly. that. Yeah, no, exactly. And they can say, oh, they can say immediately, oh, you know, the, the, the main ball race is gone and you're a lathe. Get another lathe or get the, you know, mm. all that. But so, you know, the tool's blunt or, you know, mm. the tool or, you, or the the rake angle on the cutter is, is the wrong angle. You know, stuff like that. Those are all things which, you know, and to anyone starting out, no matter what they're making, having those connections and having that sort of mentoring is, it's crucial. It can be the, the difference between going up endless blind alleys and wasting hours and days of your time doing stuff which is just not feasible or having somebody say, oh, have you thought of doing it this way? Bang, you've got a solution and you've sorted out the problem, mm. you know? We've got a whole lot more information available to us, don't we? Like when... Yeah, look, when you and I started out doing what we were doing, books yeah. uh, were what you could do or you could go and, and talk to somebody, mm. if you could find somebody, that is. Nowadays, yeah. we've got um, the wonderful Google and we've got YouTube and all sorts of other resources at our disposal. Yeah, look, I, I think YouTube is fantastic because, you know, you see, you know, people in their workshops sussing something out and... Um, Having close-up camera work, you know, shows you action, you know, that, that you mm. just be yourself. And that you, you really can't get that from books or verbal description. So, you know, YouTube can be great. I mean, there's also a lot of crap on there, which is just a total waste of time. But, yeah, you're right. Having Nothing beats having somebody in your workshop and addressing the problem or the issue you've got. Mm. Have you ever yeah. thought of doing YouTube, having a YouTube channel? Oh, it's just too time-consuming. I've just got too many other things on. Look, I take little video clips and heaps of photographs of what I do, mainly setups, because I sort of get to a stage where I've forgotten how I made something, which is... <laughs> I do that too. <laughs> you know, like... Something was it the other? I was, I was making a new pellet um, shape for a pellet, and I, was, I couldn't figure out how I held the bloody thing because I couldn't get clamps on it sideways, and you know. And then I went back, and then I realised what I'd done. I'd taken a block of aluminium, I'd milled the surface, and I'd taken some um, super glue. And I just glued the thing on with super glue and milled it, you know, with it, you know, but it's all stuff that you sort of forget. Yeah. Yeah, because you're not doing it every day, are you? You might do it once every six months or whatever. And it's... Well, no, oh, the last time I made, I would have made a batch of about 10 or 12 or so, you know, two years ago. Yeah. Do you have a superpower outside of making timepieces? Uh, <laughs> a superpower. Okay. <laughs> Fuck's a superpower. I don't think I have any superpowers, to be quite honest with you. Apart from making timepieces. No, 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 no. Look, believe me, there are there are expert makers out there that would knock the pants off me. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I just make, you know, I just do them differently, okay? Yeah. They're kind of like architectural things, aren't they? They are a bit, yeah, you know, and quite a few of them sort of 
I do play around with that, like industrial architecture where there's all kinds yeah. of... Look, it's just a different take. But no, superpowers... What your superpower needs to be is to be able to go back in time. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you reckon? Yeah, yeah go, no, go, I'd, I'd go ahead in time. <laughs> go ahead in time, that's it. <laughs> yeah, hang on, that's just getting older. Uh-oh. <laughs> Maybe not so super after all. <laughs> When the apocalypse comes, are you going to have any useful skills? Oh, the apocalypse? Fuck, I, well, we're in the middle of one now, aren't we? No. No, this yeah, is no. No, I'm this is no this is just running out of toilet paper. No, no, yeah, no, I'm no. talking about a full-on catastrophe which doesn't involve toilet paper. Oh, I could, but I don't think you'd be worried about toilet paper. <laughs> I think you'd be worried about other things like survival. Uh, well, let me think. Look, I mean, I'm totally unemployable, put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would last 10 seconds in a job, I tell you. I'd open my big mouth and I'd be given the sack like. Do you think? <laughs> well, I'd make some smart-ass comment. Look, I think we need more people that make smart-ass comments in the world, don't you? I mean... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I don't mind. I mean, it depends what the comments are. Nah, I, I, I certainly wouldn't get a day job. That, so that's out of the question. What would I? No one wants a bloody fancy clockmaker in in the middle of an apocalypse. You know. So that, that would knock them out. I don't know what I'd do. I I just have to live by my wits, I suppose. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Do you reckon that art and craft is useful to our society? Oh, totally. Absolutely. I mean, isn't that what makes life worth living? I mean, what the hell else are we going to do with our time? Mm. And who would make all the wonderful things that people enjoy that we make? Yeah. I think it's crucial. I think it's crucial too. Oh, absolutely. I reckon we're going to get to a stage where instead of – Digital technology, computer technology and digital production, printing, CD, 3D printing, etc., laser cutting, whatever, will get to, uh, it'll become the kind of thing which everyone can have in their home. It'll become like a PC, right? Mm. And that will just open up a whole new level of creative expression. Yeah? That's pretty it'll interesting, isn't it? It'll democratise that, as opposed to, you know, having to have a specialised production plant which has got million-dollar machinery in there. You can have something in your shed and you can just play around and you can make amazing stuff. And yeah. I think we just started and it's going to take off. Yeah, so you could kind of like if you want a new something, coffee pot. Yeah. Go and 3D print a coffee pot. but. You know, do something unusual. Hmm. What's the best decision you ever made? Oh, it's a hard one. I reckon, I reckon, best decision, certainly one of the biggest, the biggest decision I ever made was leaving South Africa. Hmm. And probably the best decision I made is coming to Australia, I reckon. Yeah. Because I could not imagine being able to have done what I've done for the past 27 years and survive without living in a country where 
There's a degree of freedom, economic wealth, prosperity, an educated population, people who appreciate what you do. Mm. No, I've I've got clients going back 20, 25 years that I'm still in touch with, and yeah. they, you know, they become like friends. Yeah, and I go to Sydney or Bathurst or wherever, they're there. I will stay with them. Yeah, you know? somehow they believed in me when I was you know starting out, and they still believe in me now, and that's really special. Yeah. Where else in the world could I have done that? People living here are very, very fortunate, believe me. Yeah. yeah. And you'd know, hey, because you've lived in a number of other places around the world. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I probably could have made it in the States, but shit, who wants to live in the US? I mean, it's it's such a fractured society. It's, you know, it's got... There might be bubbles of, you know, where you can. I could have gone to the UK, but, you know, I couldn't go back and I could have gone to the Netherlands, but there's so much history there and they are so fixed in their ways, if you know what I mean. Yeah, right. It's, it's almost like having too much history. Yeah. The way history determines what you do, you know, it's... Uh, I think Australia's got just the balance of an open-ended freedom, but but still an appreciation of precedent. Yeah, that's a really interesting take on that. Yeah, we're very fortunate. It is a pretty wonderful country. Absolutely. Beautiful culture too. Yep, yep. I've been here, I've been here longer than I've been anywhere else, yeah. even longer than in South Africa. I've been here, what, 35 years? Yeah. Ago. Are you a citizen of Australia or are you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I became a citizen after, what, I had to wait two years. Yeah, you know? right. So, yep, bam, I'm in <laughs> yeah. there. Yep. Yeah, I just couldn't muck around. I got straight <laughs> in. Yeah. yeah, cool. Have you ever been in a, a bad headspace? And if you have, how did you get yourself out of it? Oh, you mean like depression? Or something? Yeah, anxiety, depression. Yeah, just feeling really shit black. No, I'm very fortunate I've never had that. Yeah. No, I've never had, look, I've never had, like, serious depression. No. And I'm very, yeah, I'd hate to be in a situation like that. But, look, if I do get down, doesn't mean to say, you know, it's all roses. But, you know, I take the dogs for a walk. I go down to the river. I go mm-hmm. and visit. I ring up a mate and go and have a chat and do stuff. Yeah. So you don't do, do you ever get really frustrated at you in your work? Like if you're making that escapement mechanism and it's, it's broken again. What do I do? Oh yeah, it can be fr- oh believe me, it can be frustrating. You gotta figure it out, you know. You don't take it personally, you don't think, oh, woe is me. No. How can you ever think like No, what you do is you just sit back, just sleep on it. Or mm. do some research or go and talk to someone. Mm. I'll call up Tom if I've got a problem. I'll say, hey, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can I come out to your factory? <laughs> you say, oh, have you looked at the horological journal? 1962, February 1962. Oh, my God. There was a fellow there who did exactly what you were trying to do. And... I'd say, yeah, right, Tom, I, I, my, my collection of magazines doesn't go back that far. So oh, well, I'll dig it out for you. And sure enough, he'll dig it out, he'll photocopy it, 
and then I'll catch up the following day. We'll go for a coffee at the at the coffee shop. Mm. And he'll put these photocopies down. And uh, the answers are there. It's like being dumb like 15 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Good God. That's that's a mind, hey. Yeah. So no, don't get yeah. Just, you know, take a think about it, research, talk about it and yeah, things will sort all you know, if all else fails, just rephrase the problem. That's an interesting way. Yeah, I like that. Just design your way out of it. Design something else. Yeah. That's it. Be creative with it. Sidestep it. Yeah. Then yeah. sort it out another time. If you could go back and give advice to a young Will, what would it be and do you think he'd listen? <laughs> I know my mum would say no. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I'd do. Yeah. If I could go back in time, is that the question? Yeah, yeah, if you could go back in time. And do what? And give yourself advice. Oh, shit. I'd get into the stock market, like, really early. I'd know exactly what to buy. <laughs> yeah. I, I, would have bought, I would have bought CSL shares when they were first floated at, like, $1.50. But what are they now? At 800 Oh, my God. Yeah, I would have bought uh, CSL, Cochlear, a whole bunch of others. Yeah, definitely buy those. Yeah, yeah, I would have. I would have done all the biotech stuff I would have bought up. Yeah. And then uh, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. I'd be in, I don't know where I'd be. You'd be Sir Will Matheson. No, I doubt it. I doubt it. (laughs) You'd be be a benefactor of people who make clocks. (laughs) (laughs) No, believe me, I'd still be a clockmaker. But I'll put it this way. I'd have a whole bunch of interesting guys around me who I could bounce ideas off. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. I'd still be, no, I'd be doing pretty much the same as what I'm doing now, but I wouldn't have the pressures. Yeah. If you didn't have the pressures, do you reckon you'd still do it, though? Yeah, I'd still do it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Look, I'm sort of getting to the stage now where, where I'm not so much under pressure anymore. No. And that's where I can afford to do stuff that I want to do as opposed to stuff that I have to do because the Mm. market that I do it. So I'm at a stage now where I can really begin to enjoy the sort of accumulated skills that I've picked up over the years. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Are you going to pass these skills on? I should. I'd love to. If there's somebody out there, that would be fantastic. You know, it would be, yeah, oh, totally. Mm. Yeah, you know, finding somebody who's got the time and the interest and the inclination and the the drive to want to do it, that's that'll be quite hard. But you haven't had anyone knock on your door saying, "Hey." Oh, I have many times, yeah. But oh, I had absolutely wonderful guy towards the end of last year came round. Mm. He was a Final year industrial design student at the RMIT. Yep. Who could see through, I don't know, he, he, he wanted more hands on experience. Because yeah. everything they do there is all, it's all digital, it's all on the screen. Yeah. And there's only so much you can teach, your, you know, somebody before it just, 
it, it's totally unreal experience. And fortunately, he was a mature age guy who had worked in a factory making stuff, uh, machine tools and agricultural machinery and whatever. So he knew how to weld. He knew he was familiar with a lathe. Mm. And he was, he was absolutely fantastic. And he worked on, the, I gave him the lathe, I put him on the pantograph, gave him milling gears. So we just go through the basic process and off he, off he went. So that was really good. But gee, it was hard work for me because, you know, I had to work like eight hours a day and I'm used to working like four or five. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't work five off. No, no, it wouldn't look good, would it? I couldn't say, shit, it's a nice weather for flying. I'm flying my plane. I'll see you later. (laughs) So, So it just became like a day job. But look, it is good, you know, it is, he was here for about six, eight weeks or something like that, mm. and he got a lot done. So if I could get somebody on those terms, I'd be more than happy to pass on my skills. Yeah, maybe one afternoon a week or something. Yeah, something just, like that. I'm just thinking that from your perspective. Yep, no, that would be good. Mm. Yeah, is it okay if people get in touch with you? And Yeah, they can. Just I think the best thing is just uh, via my website which hasn't been updated in about 10 years. No, that's what mine hasn't either. I've really got into, I've really got to get onto that. I feel so guilty as well. Yeah. No, they can get they can get in touch with me via my website or via Instagram. Believe it or not, I'm on, I'm on Instagram. Yeah. So and can, what's what's the addresses for those? Oh, my website is uh, willmatheson at bigpond.com.au. And like Matheson has got various spellings around the world, and it. Oh, it's M A T T H Y S E N. Yeah. And uh, if they get onto Instagram, it's just uh, Will Matheson, one word. So that's M A T T H Y S E N, with yeah, one word. Yep. That's it. Beautiful. Have we left anything out? No, I don't think so. I think you can probably leave a lot out in the editing if you want to. Everyone says that. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't. It all goes yeah. in. The only things I do edit out are the ums and the ahs. Yeah, yeah. And pauses. Be... I, I take pauses out too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I reckon it's dinner time. I'm going to have something to eat. Bloody good, Will. Thanks so much for your time. Cheers, mate. Cheers, Adrian. See ya. See ya.